Well, the timing of this lesson is certainly interesting, I think. <clears throat> when you think about showing partiality, when you think about discrimination, it certainly has become one of the greatest social tensions of our time. Racial discrimination between blacks and whites, we certainly have seen that through this election. And it's interesting, I was telling a friend of mine today, I don't, in Tulsa it seems like there's a lot of discrimination, not just between blacks and whites, but between whites and Hispanics, it seems to have be on the rise. We also have religious discrimination, Christian denominations, world religions, Catholicism. We have social discrimination between the rich and the poor. And this last year, especially the last few months, we've seen political discrimination between Republicans and Democrats. There's educational discrimination. Those of us that are uneducated and those of us who are educated. And we have gender discrimination, don't we, between the male and the female sex. But discrimination can also come in other forms. It can come in forms of judging outward appearances. We can discriminate against those who maybe are not as pretty as we are, or they don't drive a nice car, or they have different kind of clothes than we wear. Maybe you are only attracted to those that are like you, that have it all together, whatever that is. You know, she has it all together. Well, what does that mean? She has it all together. Sometimes we're judgmental of people's personal habits, their social etiquette, their English grammar, their hairstyle, the decor of their house, or even the appearance of their yards. Things that seem offensive to us can trigger discriminatory responses in our actions and our words, and I think most of all, where no one else sees but God, is the privacy of our thought life. Now, ladies, that unkind of conduct, unkind conduct, is not surprising in the world that we live in that is given over to wickedness. But that kind of conduct is inappropriate for a Christian. God expects a much higher standard from us. And tonight, as we start chapter two of James, we are going to probably be slapped around just a little bit, and I'm not going to do that, but James will do that for us by the Holy Spirit as he writes. And we're just going to cover the first five verses this evening, and um, next week we're going to be finishing this up, this sin of partiality. But if you would with me, uh, read James two uh, verses one through five together. James says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons? For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring in fine apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to the, excuse me, you have respect to him that wears the fine clothing, and say to him, Sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor, Stand there, or sit under my footstool. Are you then not partial in yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to those that love him? Now, last week we had three tests as we finished chapter one. First of all, we had the test to ourself, and that was to bridle our tongue. How many of you worked on bridling your tongue this week? Ah, oh, one good student, three, four students, yay, five. 
The second was the test to others, and that was to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. I hope some of you reached out. I know some of you did because I heard from some of the widows in our church that some of you did. And then lastly, we had the test to the world, and that was we are to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. Now, this evening we're going to have another test, and this is the test of showing partiality. And I've broken this lesson down into four sections, and let me give it to you, and maybe this will help um, you be able to unpack these verses. First of all, we're going to see the statute against partiality. And you might say, what's a statute? Well, I had to get everything in outline form for a book. A statue is a command. So we're going to see, first of all, the statue against partiality in verse 1. Then we're going to see the scenario of partiality. What is actually happening in verses 2 and 3? Then we're going to see the sin of partiality in verse 4. And then lastly, we're going to see the Savior, our Savior of partiality in verse 5. Now, before we get started, church history tells us that this event that we're going to study tonight actually took place in the church that James pastored. And I think that makes this event even more disgusting is that this was actually something that James witnessed. So the first thing we're going to see is the statute or the command against partiality. Notice how he begins. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Now, it's interesting that he begins this section with two words, my brethren, my brethren. My brethren, ladies, is a reminder That as a Christian, we have an intimate, sacred bond, a union with our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, as James called him, calls them. He says, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Don't try to combine your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with acts of partiality. You who profess to believe in Jesus Christ and you claim him as your Lord and Savior, while practicing your faith, you play favorites in the church? Don't be a Christian and simultaneously a hypocrite. Don't hold the faith of Jesus Christ and at the same time show partiality. James says that's a contradiction. And he says you do that with the Lord of glory? If you're going to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord, then stop being partial, he says. The word here for glory, when James calls him the Lord of glory, means divine and heavenly radiance. Remember John 1, 14, John talks about this. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his what? Glory, the glory of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. And James says, you show this faith with the Lord of glory, You do this with partiality. You have respect of people that come into your church. Now, your translation, Old King James says respect of persons. New King King James may say partiality. I'm not sure what some of the other translations say. But I'm going to define what respect of persons means. It actually comes from two Greek words. The first one means to receive the face. Receive the face. And the second Greek word means to understand. The receiving of the face would mean to to lift up the face, to regard a person's countenance. Uh, could be even like casting him down in your thought life. 
Um, the word understand also meant to comprehend, to seize with the mind, to show partiality based on a person's race, their wealth, their social status, their political status. What James is saying here, when he says you do this with respect of persons, it'd be like someone coming in the back door right now, and all of a sudden I'm just checking them out from top to bottom. I'm scanning them, and I'm going, hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm coming together with a thought about what I think about that person. I immediately form an opinion. Hmm. James says, my brethren, do not have the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Ladies, do you know that our Lord did not show partiality? Turn back to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. It's very telling that James uses this term here because when you think about our, our Lord, he did not show partiality, not one iota. Luke chapter 20, beginning, let's turn, let's go back up to, well, let's, let's start at verse 19. It says, the chief priests and the scribes, the same hour, sought to lay hands on him, talking about Christ, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. And they watched him, and they sent forth spies who should feign themselves righteous men, that they might take hold of his words, so that they would deliver him unto the power and authority over the governor. And they asked him, saying, Master, we know that you say and you teach right, neither do you accept the person of any, but you teach the way of God truly. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness. He said, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius whose image and superscription has it. They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God. And they couldn't take hold of his words before they people, before the people. And they marveled at his answer and they held their peace. Ladies, even the church's enemies and their spies recognize what? Jesus didn't show partiality. Lord, we know that you you say and you do what's right. You do not accept the person of any. You don't receive the face. You don't scan a person as he comes in the door and makes a judgment. So do we give to Caesar or not? In fact, turn back to Romans. This is a passage you looked at in your homework, but I want to kind of get the whole context. I don't know if you read at the beginning of Romans chapter 2, but I think Paul is very telling here about the hypocrisy of showing partiality. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I think I just had you look at a few of these verses, but I want to read it in its context. Paul says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are that judge. For wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you that judge, you do the same things. We are sure that the righteousness of God is according to truth against those who commit such things. (laughs) And think thou this, O man, you who judge them who do such things and you do the same things, do you not think you'll escape their judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But after your hardness and impenitent heart treasures up yourself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation, anguish upon every soul of man that does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. 
but glory, honor, and peace to every man that works good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And look at verse 11. For there is no respect of persons with God. Doesn't matter if you're his loved people, if you're a Jew. Doesn't matter if you're a Greek. If you do bad, you're going to receive punishment. If you do good, what does it say? Peace, glory, honor, eternal life. Ladies, Jesus did not show partiality. You know what James, in effect, is saying? My brothers, my sisters, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, who himself lowered himself in poverty and humility, don't show favoritism to the rich. You know, we judge people very easily, don't we? In fact, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but even tonight, as we've mingled with these different sisters in Christ, have you judged someone by the clothes they've worn this evening? By the words they spoke to you, by their appearance. We do that, don't we? You know, I've been rebuked many times in my own life as a pastor's wife, judging people, making an, making an immediate judgment. And a lot of times I've been very ashamed as I've gotten to know people on a more intimate basis and found out, you know, maybe there's a really good reason for why they act or dress or do what they do. Well, James goes on to illustrate how they were demonstrating partiality in verses 2 and 3. And here we see the scenario of partiality. Notice what he says. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. And we're going to stop there. So here we have the scenario of two individuals who come into the assembly. And it's interesting, the Greek word, when it says come, the repetition of the Greek word come, doesn't mean that the poor man and the rich man came in the door at the same time. First you have the rich man, he came in first, and then a little bit later comes in the poor man. It was a separate event. And the assembly we know is what? Just the synagogue. We might say they come into the church. So the first man comes in, and notice, he's wearing gold rings and fine clothes. And this is really interesting because in biblical times, if you had rings, it was indicative that you were rich. In fact, in the New Testament times, if you had money, thankfully I don't have rings on every finger, but you would wear a ring on every finger except the middle finger. And that would show that you had a lot of money. In fact, a lot of the shops in Rome would even rent rings. Instead of renting a rich, you would rent a ring. That's a joke here in our church. We rent rich, rich as in Richard. But anyway, that's off the topic. You can delete that out of the thing if you want. (laughs) Sorry about that. Anyway, the fine apparel there, so I told you about the rings, the fine apparel would indicate rich and splendid dress. Or it might say, oh, that person, boy, they smell so good. They must have just had a shower. They smell so fresh. Today we might say the person walking in, they smell really good. They're the best dressed. So in comes this man, and he's rich. And he's well-dressed, and you immediately determine that this person is worthy of your attention. Then comes in the poor man. Notice what James says. Then there comes in a poor man with filthy clothes. Now, poor here means that he's filthy or he's foul. He has on vile clothes, shabby clothes. It comes from the same Greek word in 1 Peter 3, 21, when Peter says we're to put away all the filth of our flesh. That's the same Greek word. Or in Zechariah, when it's talking about Joshua's high priestly clothes that were filthy. So it comes from that same Greek word. 
Today we might say, in comes a homeless person, or maybe a bag lady. Now, it's interesting, when James is talking about this, the reference here is not necessarily to people who come to our church all the time. These are visitors. These are visitors coming into your church, and here is the moment when they are going to see what a Christian looks like. And it reveals the heart of the regular attendees, the church members. Now, before proceeding, I want to clarify a few things because some people will use these passages, you know, how they do and take them out of context. So I want to clarify a couple of things. First of all, James is not criticizing the wearing of jewelry or fine clothes. He is not condemning that. Um, In fact, remember, Paul gives guidelines. Peter and Paul both give guidelines to women on their jewelry. I want to remind you of those passages. Notice, um, well, you don't have to turn there, but just listen. 1 Timothy 2.9, Paul says, In like manner, I want the women to adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but that which is proper for women professing godliness with works. Now, we don't have time to study 1 Timothy, but that's for another time. But if you look at that passage carefully, Paul is defining modesty, not by condemning, and a lot of people will take that verse and say, well, women shouldn't wear short skirts and they shouldn't wear tight outfits. And no, I don't think they should, but that's not what he's saying. He's referring to modest apparel by the the jewelry and the clothing, because I think we had this a couple years ago in 1 Peter, but remember what some of the ladies would do in New Testament times when they'd come to church? Remember they'd have, we talked about it, gold bracelets all up and down their arms, and they'd have rings on all their fingers, and they'd have these ostentatious hairdos with all these braids and clips in, and so can you imagine a woman like that coming in the church tonight? I mean, we'd all be going, oh my goodness. And Peter's saying, don't dress like that. Do not dress like that to come to church. Instead of making an ostentatious display, he says, have a more common or humble dress. In fact, listen to Peter. Peter says the same thing. First Peter three, three to four. He says, do not let, he's talking about women, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging your hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart the incorruptible, uncorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Peter says, don't focus on your outward dress when you come to church. Instead, we should be focusing on women on our meek and quiet spirit. Ladies, neither Peter nor Paul nor James is forbidding the wearing of jewelry, but he is commending women to pay more attention to the inner heart rather than external beauty. Which brings me to a question. When you dress for church or ladies' Bible study, is it to draw attention to yourself? Do you judge others on their appearance? Maybe whispering to your friend or talking to your friend on the way home or saying something in your heart like, that dress went out years ago, out of style years ago. Or do you say, where did she get that outfit? On the other hand, I do not think think that these verses give us license to never bathe or to never dress or to dress like a slob. I mean, you better dress, but to dress like a slob. In fact, I remember my mother saying to me many times growing up, cleanliness is next to godliness. Did your mother ever say that to you? So we always had to have baths when I was growing up. Anyway, I wanted to make that clear in this context because a lot of times people will say, 
they will use this verse out of context. James is not condemning jewelry and fine clothing. Neither is Peter, neither is Paul. So these two individuals come into the church, both the rich and the poor. Ladies, when you think about it, there is discrimination going on with the rich and the poor. The rich is being elevated, should not be, and the poor is being discriminated in that he is being humiliated. So notice what James says in verse 3. So you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, you sit here in a good place. You know what's so appalling about this scenario here? Even the speaker about whom James is writing doesn't even offer a seat to the poor man. He wasn't a very fine example. He was probably the well, you know, the guy that welcomes him at the door, the greeter, the deacon. He didn't even offer him a seat. In fact, the, the King James here, when it says, you have respect to him that wears the fine clothing, and this verse respect means looking upon him with favor, being impressed by his garment. Ladies, James doesn't specifically say, but it's possible the rich man was looked upon with favor because why? Of the money that he would give to the church. In fact, the Greek tense indicates this rich man immediately attract attention. All the heads turn to look at him. The word respect also has a secondary meaning of to eye with envy. To eye with envy. Meaning when this man came in, you know, he's got all these rings on. He's dressed to a T. He smells great. All the heads turn and look at him. And so instead of being occupied with the Lord and worshiping him, who are they occupied with? The man walking in the door. My dear sisters, we come to church to worship the Lord. To worship the Lord. So I would encourage you, if your clothing is distracting in any way, you might want to think twice about what you wear to church. You don't want to be a hindrance to others' worship. So these two individuals come in, and to the rich, the speaker says, stand here or sit by me. And then he looks at the poor and notice what he says. You stand over there or you sit here at my footstool. It's interesting, the footstool in New Testament times was a stone bench which would run along the wall. In fact, you know, in New Testament times they segregated the men and the women, but there was a stone bench that would run across the wall, and that's where he was telling him to go sit. In fact, it's also interesting, in the Old Testament, they would have a practice of placing their enemies at their footstool. In fact, it implied the place where common people stood or squatted. And so to have someone sit at your footstool would mean what? Degrading to him and puffing you up. Now, you might say, Susan, you know, we don't have footstools in our church. I mean, you know, I don't do this. Well, we may not see the exact thing happening today, but I think we have situations which are far worse than that. I think we have people come into our church and we determine their worthiness by the person the worthiness of the person by the color of their skin, their background, their upbringing, their clothes, their political standing, their social standing. Ladies, all people should be considered equal before God. We are rich or poor. He is the maker of all of us, isn't he? 
In fact, I read a story one time. It was very appalling. I won't even tell you who it is about. But I read a story one time about a pastor. And before he would spend time with the new people in his church, he would check the financial records. And the more that person gave to his church, the more time he would spend with them. And the ones that didn't give to the local church, he didn't spend any time with them. Ladies, that's an appalling example of favoritism, but it's a contemporary example of what James is saying here. And I think we need to be reminded during this time of persecution, remember it's a lot like the Holocaust going on, there's going to be a lot more of those kind of people that come in that are poor and shabby because it left a lot of them very homeless and very poor. Ladies, we need to remind ourselves that the Lord of glory was poor. He was not a rich man, even though some false teachers will try to tell us that today. In fact, when we think about the Lord, our Lord Jesus, our Lord of glory, do you know that he was poor? He was born in a what? Borrowed manger. He didn't have a place to lay his head. He preached his first sermon, if you remember in the gospel account, in a what? A borrowed boat. He rode into Jerusalem on a what? Borrowed donkey. Remember, he had to go send the disciples to get the donkey. And he ate his last supper, remember, where? In a borrowed room. He sent the disciples to go prepare the way for the last Passover. How do you think you would treat a person of that statute if he came into your church today? Ladies, Jesus never catered to the rich, and neither should we. Now, another thing I want to go on and and speak to before we get back to the text, and again, this is something that is taken out of context quite a bit. James is not prohibiting close friendships a lot of people will say well see you shouldn't have close friends within the church i don't know where they get that even jesus our lord of glory had three close friends who were they anybody tell me peter james and john he spent more time with those disciples than anyone else Ladies, the favoritism that James is mentioning refers to receiving the face, scanning someone when, when they come into your church and immediately forming an opinion and judging them and showing partiality. Well, continuing with his discourse, exposing partiality, James now asks two questions in verse 4, and both questions are asked in such a manner, anticipating a yes for the answer. And here we see the sin of partiality in verse 4. The first question is this, have you not shown partiality among yourselves? I mean, it's almost like he's shocked. Have you not made distinctions, James says? Are you not divided Are you not double-minded? You know, we've had this word already in the first part of James, a man that has a trial and he comes to God and he's doubting and, you know, he believes in God, but he doesn't believe. And James says, what? You're double-minded and you're not going to receive anything of the Lord. James is using that same word here. Haven't you shown partiality? By their attitude of showing partiality and double-mindedness, they denied the heart of Christianity. They became double-minded. They were facing both ways. How can they show partiality combined with their faith with the Lord of glory? And then he asked a second question, also with amazement. Aren't you become judges with evil thoughts? The word evil here means in a moral sense, maliciousness, 
Ladies, favoritism stems from selfishness. You know, by their conduct, by this man's conduct, by showing favoritism to the rich, by degrading the poor, you know what they were doing? They were taking it upon themselves to be the judge of men's character. They were judging by what? The dress alone. They showed they placed more value on the soul of the well-dressed person than the poor person. Ladies, we have no right to judge people by their outward appearance, even though the Bible says we do that. Did you know that? 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, The Lord doesn't see as man sees. Man looks on the what? Outward appearance. But God, look, looks at our heart. Jesus says in John seven twenty four, Do not judge according to appearance, even though we do. But judge with righteous judgment. Now I want to ask you a question this evening. Let's suppose two different families start coming to your church. One family is on welfare, not due to any fault of their own. The other family that starts coming to your church is middle class, very well respected, well groomed. Who do you think in your church would receive the warmer welcome? Do you think the youth of both families would be as eagerly invited to the youth trips? If both men of these families were qualified to be deacon and elder in your church, do you think both of them would be asked or chosen? Ladies, the church of Jesus Christ is the one place where discrimination should not be found. There should be no distinction when we come to church and we meet in the presence of the King of Glory. God's children in God's church must never give the impression that God sides with those who have power and who have wealth, because he doesn't. In fact, James continues with his rebuke in verse 5, and here we see our Savior of partiality. Notice how he ends this discourse, Hearken, my beloved brethren. Has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? James says, listen. Hearken, listen up, you guys, in case you don't get the message. Listen, my beloved brethren, hasn't God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? Now, maybe you say, well, maybe this means God's not willing to save the rich. He's only willing to save the poor. Well, that's not true because there's no partiality with him, right? But ladies, the conditions of the poor make it more likely that they will embrace the kingdom. Didn't Jesus say, with much difficulty, a rich man will enter into the kingdom of heaven? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's interesting, the word chosen here in the Greek indicates that his choice that Christ chose the poor of this world was entirely in the past. Paul says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And we touched on this doctrine of election. I know some of you, for some of you, that was hard in James 1.18 when we saw that God willed our salvation. He sat down. He thought about it. He knew it would cost his son, Jesus Christ, and he willed our salvation. And maybe you're still having struggles. I know I've talked to some of you understanding the doctrine of election. 
but maybe this will help you a little bit. I read about a woman one time and she said, I have long settled that doctrine for if God did not choose me before I was born, I am sure he would have nothing to have chosen me for afterwards. So uh, maybe that'll help you a little bit. James says, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world? In fact, you know, it's interesting. Church history verifies the fact that more poor people have responded to the gospel than rich people. Did you know that? Generally speaking, God has chosen to populate heaven with poor people. And you might say, well, good, I'm going to quit my job. And no, there's no merit in poverty. God does not discriminate against the poor, but ladies, the poor will respond to the gospel. In fact, I have a a relative that I've been sharing the gospel with for a long time who's very wealthy. She has no need of Christ. She has no need of Christ. She has everything. The term poor here is interesting in the Greek. It means one who crouches or cowers for fear. The one for whom the burden of life is so great they can only beg You know, the rich depend on their possessions, don't they? But the poor on their possessor. In fact, you remember back in chapter 1 when James referred to the poor as the brother of what? Low degree. He says what? Let the brother of low degree what? Rejoice in that he's exalted. He's getting to go to heaven. But the rich in that they are made poor. Well, James says two more things about them. Notice what he says. Hasn't God chose the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those that love him? Ladies, notice here, the poor are rich in faith. Why? Because God is their savior. They're going to heaven. And ladies, that's far more valuable than anything on this earth. We are citizens of heaven. Their wealth consists of their salvation and all the blessings that accompany it. In fact, the word chose here talks, excuse me, the world tends to choose those who are rich in money, but God chooses the poor to be rich in faith. Notice the second thing that James says. He says, not only are the poor rich in faith, but he says they're heirs of the kingdom, which God has promised to those that love him. The poor may now be insignificant to the world, but they possess the glorious prospect of inheriting the kingdom of God. You know, this evening you may be waiting for mom or dad to die or grandma to die because you think you're going to inherit all this money. But ladies, who cares? Someday you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. If you are his child, that's a promise. In fact, the Greek tense here looks back to the fact that God made this promise to believers. Do you know your inheritance was not a sudden thought? It was long thought out. Just like God sitting down to will your salvation. He considered the cost. He also sat down and thought about the inheritance he was going to give you. And believe me, it's better than any inheritance your parents will give you. You're an heir of the kingdom which God has promised to those that love him. What a wonderful truth, and yet what a sad disservice this church here had done to this poor visitor. He would be far more likely to become a believer than the rich man, and yet he was the one that was treated with disdain, with disgust, and with humiliation. Now, in closing, I want to give you a scenario, and I want you to be honest in the privacy of your thought life. You don't have to answer these questions out loud. But I want you to picture this evening, because you are attending a ladies' Bible study, 
But I want to picture, want you to picture back up about an hour ago and you were out there mingling at the table or you were talking to your friends. And suddenly two women who have never attended this Bible study come through the door. The first woman who came in was well-dressed, obviously wealthy, indicated by her jewelry and her designer clothes. And then a little bit later, a second one comes in, and she's obviously poor. She kind of smells a little bit, like she hadn't had a bath in a while. And she has on shabby clothes. How would you respond to each visitor? Honestly, don't answer out loud, but answer honestly in the privacy of your heart. Would you greet the wealthy lady, take her to the refreshment table, introduce her to everyone, make her feel comfortable? No doubt that's a nice thing to do. But if you're only trying to win her favor while avoiding the poor woman that comes in, you have committed a vicious sin. Your true motive would be revealed on how you treat the poor woman. Would you show her equal honor? Would you take her to the refreshment table? Would you introduce her to all of your friends? Or would you say in the privacy of your thought life, let someone else go greet her? Ladies' favoritism, partiality is so subtle we don't even recognize it in ourselves at times. In fact, I remember talking to someone several years ago, and they were leaving their church, and they were church hunting. And I was visiting with them, and I was asking how their church hunting was going. And she said, well, I've been to several different places. And she had told me about one that she had just visited like a week ago. And she said, I drove into the parking lot, and I was a little bit early. And so she said, I just waited in my car. And she said, I began to see the people drive in the parking lot and get out of their car and go into church. And she said, when I saw what kind of people they were, and this is the description that was given to me, fat and sloppy, she said, I didn't go. I went back home. I have to tell you, I was shocked and I was disgusted at that kind of a wicked attitude, immediately judging by how someone dressed. That illustration is a prime example of the attitude that James is condemning here. My sisters, these things ought not so to be. But what, what is even worse is for us to say smugly, I would never have that attitude. Because except for the grace of God, we all have that attitude, don't we? Because we look on the outward appearance. That is why I believe with all my heart, ladies, we must be in prayer constantly about our attitudes. We must be in this book right here. And we must be constantly depending on the Spirit of God so that our deepest thoughts and our deepest motives will be revealed. And then we can get rid of them and repent. Then and only then will we not be guilty of the awful sin of showing partiality. And we're not done. We're going to come back next week with the second part of this lesson. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I do want to come to you this evening confessing my own sin, Lord, knowing that Many times I do scan, I do receive the face, I show respect of persons. I immediately make biased judgments by how people look, by how they act, by what they say. And Lord, I know that that is a wicked, evil sin. When your, 
when your word says that God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith, when your word says that God is not a respecter of persons, not even in judgment, the Jew will be judged to the same degree as the Gentile. Lord, when we read these things, we know that we are guilty and we stand as guilty before you for being involved in this awful sin of showing partiality. Father, I pray that you would continue to scan the secret motives of our heart, the intents that we have, Lord, and that those would be revealed, those things that are sinful, that we might turn away from them, that we might repent of our sins. And, Lord, that we would reach out to the stranger, that we would reach out to the visitor, even those that are not like we are. And, Lord, that we would make every effort to not be guilty of showing partiality. And I pray that you would show us those ways that it might come in our lives more subtly, not just maybe in this this glowing example that James has given us this evening of two different people that come into our church, but, Lord, maybe in other ways that we show partiality. I pray that you would reveal that to us even this evening. And help us, Father, to not combine our faith with our glorious Lord by the sin of partiality. And I pray this, Father, that you would be glorified and that you would be honored in our lives for Christ's sake. Amen.